Picture this. You're a teenager in the 1970s and you're hanging out with your best friends. Having the time of your life, you're deep in the dark woods, seated around a campfire, singing songs as one of you strums the guitar. You're smiling and laughing under the stars without a care in the world. Suddenly, you hear some branches snapping in the distance, then a couple more, this time closer. Is someone there? You call out, but there's no answer. Again, you ask, hello, who's there? Silence. A loud bang erupts, then another, and two armed figures begin to emerge from the woods. This nightmare scenario is the start of how a night of partying would quickly turn to tragedy for a group of five teenagers from South Dakota on November 17th, 1973. I'm Colby. I'm joined by my two best friends, Laura and Marina, and this is Grim. Oh boy. I am excited because I feel like we always talk about bad things happening in the 70s and now it really is and I'm very excited to hear about it because we know nothing about this case. No, we don't. I'm excited but also scared because I do like to have fall fires Mm -hmm. and when my husband goes inside to go to the bathroom... I sit there hypersensitive, <laughs> listening for a noise six miles away, um, freaking myself out. Yep. So I'm sure I'll be thinking about this case mm-hmm. during this fall. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when I was a teenager, I did a lot of dumb stuff. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. most of the time, I was not thinking about my own safety. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, you kind of end up in one of these scenarios and you just like tell yourself that it's your imagination yes. running wild. Absolutely. Because usually it is. is. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I feel like that's not the case here. It, it is definitely not the case here. So today we're going to talk about the 1973 Gitche Manitou murders, which took place in an Iowa state park of that same name. Hmm. So I had heard about this case while I was mindlessly scrolling through Facebook one morning, as one does, and there just happened to be a post about it in one of my true crime groups. And one of the reasons I gravitated towards it is I just came off of researching the Marvin Hemeyer case where we had a man who was a criminal, right, by Mm -hmm. the definition of of what he had done. He committed crimes and people viewed him as a hero. Mm. This case, there is one survivor from the attack and she's actually treated like a villain. So I thought it was like a good like yin and yang, like a little bit of balance to the cases that I did back to back. Hmm. So that's why I selected it. That's fascinating. I'm I'm knowing nothing about this case. I'm trying to figure out how that is possibly the outcome of this. What's the name of that state park? Gitchy Manitou. Is that like Gitchy Gitchy Yeah Yeah? Dada. That is exactly <laughs> what I thought. Oh my god. No, no, it's not like that. I'm be, very sorry I did that. It had, to be, it had to be unleashed from my brain. I I had to get it out. Okay. We also haven't sung on the we podcast haven't. in a while. It's been so, a while, yeah. yeah. I even gave you the opening and I don't remember what case, but there was no body, no crime. <gasps> and I didn't do it. No. No body, no crime. Thank you. Okay. Let's okay. see what songs you come up with this case. <laughs> Pro- this proceed. Case. Proceeded. So before we jump into the details, I want to give a shout out to the most notorious podcast. So they had an episode where they conducted an interview with author Phil Hammond, who, along with his wife, Sandra Hammond, actually wrote a book on this case called The Gitchy Girl. 
I found out about the book a little bit too late, so I didn't have time to read it. So I really appreciated an hour long interview with its author mm. to be able to just get some insight that he shared in the book itself. That's and that's awesome. probably why this episode will be around an hour versus three. <laughs> yes, because yeah. I don't yep. have all the notes from the book. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Um, I also I thought this was funny to do. I also watched a bunch of like news clips, Mm. but they're more modern day, like the 40th anniversary of the killings, 45th. Um, And they showed clips of newspaper articles on the screen from back in the 70s. And I could not find links to these articles online. So I literally paused my TV (sighs) and got like super close to it so I could read all of the print in the newspapers. They were showing images. That's amazing. (laughs) In case you're wondering what kind of research we do for this podcast. It is things like that. In case you wanted to know how psychotic we are. (laughs) It's that level. Yep. All right. So what I want to do for this case is I had shared there's one survivor. So I want to tell most of the story from her perspective. <gasps> oh, okay. I love it already. All right. So I think it's you guys ready to meet Sandra Chesky? Ready. Yes. All right. So Sandra Chesky was born on September 1st, 1960 to parents Dolores and Cameron Chesky. She was the youngest of their four children and their only daughter. Their marriage was not one that was destined to last, unfortunately. Um, And Dolores and Cameron often fought over finances, and they decided to split up, leaving Dolores to raise the children as a single mother. Not a small task, right? There's four children. Mm. Wow. So Dolores works long hours to make ends meet. Um, She even goes back to school for nursing so she could try to have a better life for her and her children. But working full time and being in school, she does not have a lot of time to focus on her kids. Mm. So her parents actually offer to help raise the children until Mm. she's done with school. Wow. I think it's very nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when Sandra was only about 18 months old, she went to live with her grandparents on a farm. Farm life wasn't easy, but Sandra was young enough where I think she kind of just got to enjoy the animals and fell in love with them. Her older brothers definitely put in some long hours working on the farm. Um, when she turned four years old, I don't know exactly why, but her and her brothers were able to go back to live with their mother. I'm assuming she finished school, mm. um, but I, I'm not entirely certain. And when Sandra herself started school, kin- like kindergarten, her mother had actually met a new man and, and was remarried to him. But unfortunately, he didn't have much of an interest in her children, like oh, to no. the point where he just really didn't even want to raise them or be around them. So Sandra said she mostly tried to stay out of his way and she wasn't a problem child herself. Like, you know, she was never mm-hmm. in trouble, which made it really shocking when she came home from school one day to be told that her and her brother Bill were being sent to live in foster care. <gasps> Sandra later found out from a family member that there was an alleged drinking problem at the home, and that's why she was in foster care. But Sandra didn't drink. She didn't think her brothers did, and she doesn't remember her stepdad having a problem with alcohol. So she actually thinks like it was a lie that they fabricated just to get the kids out of the house. They wouldn't have to deal with them. You can't just like give kids back. Right. You have to keep like her mom should have been like okay you don't want my kids that means our relationship is incompatible you can't be like oh okay well let me just get rid of my kids what's the return policy on this child (laughs) probably easier than your there's a small window (laughs) there's a small window where you could drop them at the firehouse no questions asked Mm -hmm. but that's it's well it's well before five years of age i could tell you that much and it's that's that's a bummer because i was really rooting for the mom until then right i was like good for her going to school Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate. That's messed up. Sandra had a rough experience in the foster care system. Her first foster parents were very cruel. She remembers them beating her own chi- their own child with oh. a wire coat hanger. And when she saw that, she called her mom pleading like, please get me out of here. Please let me oh. come home. Oh. She didn't get to come home, but Sandra was placed in a second foster care home, which 
they weren't abusive, but they basically treated her like an unpaid maid or servant. So they, you know, it wasn't a better environment for her. Jeez. She was separated from her brother, so he went to a different home than she did. And for what it's worth, Bill did have a much better experience in the foster care system. He was placed with a police officer, and the family treated him very well. Oh. And how old was San- Sandra? Right. Sandra was five, I believe, five years old oh. when she would have been placed into foster care. So traumatic being taken from your parents or your mom. Awful. And for like no good reason. Yeah, no good reason. Too. Yeah. After you've already been uprooted because you were living with your grandparents, probably felt like that was home. Now you're back to your yep. mom and felt like that was home. And that's, oh, poor kid. I know. But there is a, a small silver lining here. So at some point, both Bill and Sandra moved back in with their mother. Oh. Only to be <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> only to get shipped off to a boarding school for Native American children in South Dakota. Were they Native American? Yes, they were. Okay. Oh. All right. But I thought it I thought it was interesting that they sent them to a specific kind of boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um because I I don't think it was like for their benefit, because I don't really feel like the stepdad was like no. interested in things that were good for them. But I had seen it called out multiple times as being that. So fascinating. I thought it was worth mentioning. Hmm. Again, this this feels like the plot to something from like a freeform, a.k.a. old school, like ABC family (laughs) show. But it's not. This is really what happened to her. She said that the faculty at this school were unnecessarily cruel and they would often tell her things like she will never see her home again. She will never see her parents again. What? So still not a good environment that Sandra is finding herself in. And her parents are paying for that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Jeez. So when the school term ends, Sandra and Bill get to go back home so they're not stuck at this boarding school indefinitely. And understandably, Sandra begged and pleaded with her mom to please get them out of there. And you know what? It worked. Her mom was like, "Okay, you don't have to go back to that boarding school. But instead, she uprooted the family and moved from where they were in Minnesota um, to the small town of T, South Dakota. Did the stepfather go with them? Yes. Okay. Mm. I believe they moved because they wanted to have a fresh start somewhere Mm. else. So it was just for like, yeah, I don't have a better explanation than that. I think they moved for a fresh start. Yeah. But she doesn't really need any more of those. No, she doesn't. I don't get that whole fresh start thing, but that's just me. I think it's also called running from your problems. Yeah. Ah. So she is about 13 when they move. So if she entered the foster care system at five, this poor girl has had like the past eight years of her life in just kind of like a constant state of flux and turmoil. As someone who has the exact same routine every single day, except for the days we record Grimm, I could not do that. Nope. (laughs) It's awful. I feel like this is an episode where you're leading up to her becoming a serial killer, but that's not what this is about. So that's why it's same. It's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It is interesting. Yes, I know. I think we I need just, a thesaurus. Yeah, I just I say, sorry, gremlins. Interesting is my favorite word. <laughs> Things, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I was actually inspired by you because in the Toy Box Killer episode, you went into like how truth or consequences was a weird name mm. for a town. And I was like, I think T is a pretty weird <laughs> name for a town. Ta- like T-E-A, like T-T. Oh. And so fun fact that town got its name because it was originally like a railroad outpost and they wanted a post office put there. So you have to have a town name to have a post office, apparently. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so the people who lived in that area wanted to come up with a list of 10 names and basically put it to a vote. 
They could only come up with nine names. And for the 10th one, somebody suggested T because there was a big German population in the area. And I, I didn't know this, but I guess afternoon tea is a big tradition for Germans. Yeah. So I think they couldn't come up with anything better. And they were like, well, it's probably time for afternoon tea anyway. Tea, anybody? And it just stuck. So the town was named tea. Hmm. I think what we've learned from this is that people need to stop naming their own towns. Yes. It does not, not work. Or boats. Townie McTownface? Yeah. <laughs> I would respect Townie McTownface. <laughs> I would move there. Mm-hmm. I'd get a fresh start in Townie McTownface. T for short. Yeah. <laughs> that works. works. I works. know that's yeah. why I said it. <laughs> All right. So shortly after she moved to T, Sandra went to the drive-in movies with a friend and she saw, and I quote, the most handsome man she has ever seen in her life. This was Roger Essam. Roger noticed her as well, and the two quickly got to talking. He asked for her number, and of course, she excitedly gave it to him. The first time he called her, the two talked on the phone for over an hour, which, aw, young love. Remember those days? I know. Now I'm like, if you call me and it could have been a text, (laughs) I'm never picking up your phone call ever again. (laughs) Yep, exactly. That's where I am. Sandra was only 13 years old at the time, Roger was actually 17, so Sandra kept her age a secret from him because she was afraid it would scare him off. Rightfully so. (laughs) Okay. I see Laura's face right now, but I will say when I was 13, I was dating a 17-year-old, and there was nothing, like, nefarious about Mm -hmm. it. I think that girls mature much faster than boys, so I was not willing to slum it with the 13-year-old boys. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. All right. And he was very nice and respectful. He did not try anything. Okay. So... It was not hard for Sandra to fake being older because I looked at photos of her and I would have guessed she was 16 or 17 in the photo. She was absolutely beautiful and she just looked like much more mature Mm. um, and just put more put together than Mm -hmm. like a 13 year old would. The two clicked really quickly and they went out on a couple of dates, usually with Roger's friends present. Um, His pal Stuart Beatty had a van and he didn't really seem to mind driving the teenagers around. So they all kind of hung out around this van and, you know, they went to each other's houses. So I (laughs) I got very big that 70s show vibes when I was researching like the friendship these guys had. Uh, It it seemed like things were just falling into place for Sandra. Probably a really welcome change given her rocky beginnings. True. Yeah. We know that doesn't last long Mm -hmm. for anybody, though, unfortunately. Not on this show. Nope. Uh, On the night of November 17th, 1973, Roger invited Sandra to come hang out with him and his friends. The plan was going to be for them to go to Gitchie Manitou State Park, and they were going to sit around a campfire and just have a chill night out. Sounds great. Sandra's brother, Bill, didn't have any plans for the night, so Sandra asked Roger if Bill could come along with them, to which Roger was like, yeah, sure, why not? Roger told his friends and he was like, "Okay, Stuart's going to come pick you both up. We'll we'll come get you in the van. The boys arrive and just as Sandra and Bill are getting ready to get into the van, one of Bill's friends pulls up and he tells him about this party that's going on. And the girl that Bill has a major crush on is going to be at the party. So Bill is kind of like, oh, Sandra, like, are you going to be upset with me if I bail on you? And she was like, I totally get it. Like, go get your girl. I'll see you later. (laughs) What Bill doesn't know is this is literally a decision that saved his life. So Bill ends up going off with his friend to this party and Sandra and the boys head over to start their evening at the park. So speaking of the boys, 
I think it makes a little bit of sense to introduce them a bit more mm-hmm. now. So we talked briefly about Roger Essam, who was Sandra's boyfriend, and he was 17. Stuart Beatty, or the driver of the van, um, was Roger's really close friend. Stuart was 18, and he enjoyed playing the guitar, and he loved to sing. His dream was to be a rock and roll superstar someday. Mm-hmm. Dana Beatty, Stuart's 14-year-old brother, uh, Dana loved his brother. He absolutely idolized him, and the two were really close, like almost more like friends, given, you know, even though there was a four year age difference between them. Dana was actually learning how to play the bass so he could be more like his big brother and jam Aww. with him. The past tense is killing me. Oh. I know. Well, just think of it as the past t- yeah. tense because we're in the past okay. so far. Okay. And finally, to round out their group, Mike Hadrith. Um, Mike was Roger's neighbor, and despite being a couple years younger than Roger, Mike was 15. The two had always been really good buddies. Mike was very athletic. He played basketball and baseball. And to this day, he actually holds the record for the most pull-ups done in the presidential (laughs) fitness test for um, a grade or a middle schooler. And he did 43 of them. Wow. You can't do one. Nope. I would just hang hang there until my arms gave out. And then I'd be like, does that count? (laughs) So the park that they're on their way to, Gitche Manitou State Park, it's a 91-acre nature preserve in Lyon County, Iowa which is located in the extreme northwestern corner of the state, very, very close to the South Dakota border. So the closest city is Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The preserve is well known for two different reasons. Uh, First and foremost, it has Native American burial mounds there, which actually makes a lot of locals suspect that the park is haunted or cursed in some way, shape or form. Yeah. (laughs) I don't disagree after what happened there. Uh Uh-huh. The second thing the park was really well known for was it had an abundance of Sioux quartzite, which is a smooth pink colored bedrock that's a popular construction material in that area. And fun fact, I genuinely thought this was fun. It is the oldest exposed rock in the state. Oh. But what it also means is that a lot of the campsites at the park are surrounded by natural wall type formations. I hate everything about this. <laughs> Just thinking. I about mean, if this. you were camping there, that would be great to have some privacy yeah. from other campers, right? Yeah. Except for when you're being attacked in the uh-huh. dark woods. But yeah. I mean, privacy is good. Yeah. Local teenagers knew the park for something else, though. Oh. They knew it as a popular place to drink beer and party with your friends. I'll say in this particular case, I don't feel like these teens were going there with an intention of partying in the woods. Like they were all really good kids from good families. Not that people who party aren't good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but none of the boys had like a criminal background or were ever in any kind of trouble and they didn't have any alcohol at the park. The teenagers got to the park around 10 p.m. and parked the van in some tall grass near a stone shelter before wandering southwest down a narrow path. They settled into a campsite that was approximately 30 yards away from the Big Sioux River which ran through the park, and then the spot they picked was framed by those natural quartzite walls I just mentioned, and they're about seven feet tall. So it does sound like a, you know, a, a beautiful landscape there, right? You've got this nice campsite, you've got some privacy, you have the river within viewing distance of you. It really sounds like, like a great place to party. I totally get why they would party there. Mm-hmm. So the teens quickly got to work gathering wood and they lit the fire. Stuart pulled out his guitar and they started singing. Sandra cuddled up to Roger, just kind of soaking the moment in. After 20 minutes or so, they started to hear leaves rustling and sticks snapping. I don't like that. It sounded like something or someone was coming towards them. Roger called out asking if anybody was there, but he got no response. The teens joked about what it could be, the wind, a bear, a very large deer. 
They were trying to convince themselves that they were just being silly and everything was fine, but Sandra was getting genuinely concerned. So Roger, being the good boyfriend that he is, he's going to go check and investigate, right, to try to make Sandra feel a little bit better. So he gave her a kiss on the cheek and he got up to investigate, again calling out like, hey, is anybody there? Suddenly, two figures appeared on top of the quartzite walls and then a gunshot rang out. Roger fell to the ground. Another shot rang out, this time hitting Stuart, who also <gasps> fell to the ground. Oh my God. Oh. Stuart was screaming, I've been shot. Oh. It hurts. It hurts. Oh. Roger was completely silent. Oh, no. Dana took off running into the woods, and Sandra was kind of just frozen in place, trying to process what was going on. Mike Hadrith had noticed this, and he actually grabbed Sandra and brought her into the woods and put her behind a tree and told her to stay there. Um, the two of them were kind of going back and forth, fig- trying to figure out, like, what do we do? Who are these people? But by now, a third man actually emerged from the woods, also armed with a shotgun. One of the men says that they are cops and this is a drug raid. What? So Stuart had the tiniest little joint of marijuana on him. Like, I'm, I am talking very teeny tiny, like not anything where these kids were going to party again, like. It's the 70s. Right. They're into Probably. rock and roll. Like, I, I think this was, like, pretty harmless. So the men tell the teens that they got to come out of the woods with their, their hands raised. And the kids are like, they're, they're cops, I guess. We have to come out of the woods. So they comply. But Mike is kind of suspecting that something's not right here. He's older than Sandra and Dana. So, you know, he, he's like, he's just not accepting they this. They just shot two people. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, the cops don't come out shooting oh my God. for a drug raid. Yep. Like a, a joint. So as Mike walks out of the woods, he says something like, who the hell do you think you are shooting at us? Because Mike's like, cops can't shoot you for this. Which makes one of the men fire a shot at oh. Mike, hitting him in the arm. Mike falls to the ground, and almost out of instinct, so does Sandra. To be clear, Sandra was not hit by mm-hmm. this shot. The men walked over to the two of them and kind of like, you know, kicked at them and said, stop playing dead. Like, you know, you guys are being overdramatic. Get up. So Mike is wounded, but he's still able to move. And the three men make Dana, Mike and Sandra start marching back towards the van at gunpoint. Sandra says that they kind of like meandered through the park a bit. So it didn't seem like they had a particular plan for what they were going to do next. Um, They even went and had the kids line up along the river with the men behind them. So they felt like if something bad was going to happen, like they would have killed them there. Right. right? But they didn't. Instead, they had the teens continue walking up towards the van that they arrived in. When they arrive back at the van, they notice that there's now a pickup truck next to the van. But it's not like a marked patrol car or anything like that. It's just a pickup truck. The men again tell the teenagers that they're in trouble for having marijuana and being out in the woods. They reiterate that they're police officers and this is a drug bust. And they say that they're going to take the boys to the station in the van and that Sandra will be going with a man called the boss. They tell the teens that they only shot their friends with a tranquilizer gun. They were both fine and they were going to be brought to the station. It was dark so i don't know like right. how much detail they yeah. could see they ran into the trees so i like i know mike and roger are on the ground roger did say he got shot although like i got shot with a tranquilizer yeah. 
and you're so there's so much going on and there's right. so you're probably completely disoriented and freaked out like you're not you're not even registering i think probably what's happening later on when people asked sandra like how could you be so gullible you were there she said that she had watched tv shows like wild kingdom and even an episode of the brady bunch where she saw animals get shot with tranquilizer guns so she was like oh this is a thing like there are tranquilizer guns that, i get it yeah yeah so i think for sandra she's probably assuming like roger had more of a direct hit right so he's out cold versus stewart like maybe it kind of caught him off to the side or wasn't enough to really put him out so she thinks they're fine she thinks that they're just knocked out right and also what are if you don't think that what are you actually going to do at that point anyway even if you're like oh they were actually shot with a gun right okay that's bad that means i should just listen (laughs) to what you say and do what you say so the boss tells Sandra that he forgot to bring his handcuffs. So instead, he binds her hands with some sort of wire that he just like happens to have in his pickup truck. He also tells her that he wants to get her out of there before the sheriff comes because he wants to minimize the amount of trouble she gets into. Before they leave, she asks the boss if he can take the makeshift handcuffs off of her. I think because they were very uncomfortable. And he actually does remove them. Hmm. So I think for Sandra, she's like, they were hurting me. I asked him to take them off of me, mm-hmm. and he did. So he didn't want to see me hurting. He must not want to hurt me. And hasn't hurt you. And Exactly. You know, yep. yep. So I, I think she, you know, she's scared, but she, I don't think she feels like her life is in danger at this yeah. point in time. Um, in fact, the last words she remembers saying to her friends were, well, I guess I'll see you in school. <gasps> so like, oh. she really thought that everything was going to be okay here. She's, 13 still She's 13. at this point. Yeah. Wow. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, well, yeah, And course. you guys said like the situation's completely different if you're there and things are going crazy and you can't think fast enough. But like hearing it back, it's like you guys really believed that. Yeah. It hurts my heart. Yeah. But again, also, even if you didn't, what what else could you do? Run. You I don't know? know. Run if you're in the dark yeah. or like I jump guess. into the river. Or I don't know. I mean, I, I know, know they have guns pointing at you. Yeah. Zigzag like an alligator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As Sandra is being driven away, she can see that Stuart's starting to make his way back up the hill. So she's like, okay, you know, the tranquilizer wore off. He's coming up. Uh, Roger's still not moving, but, you know, maybe he just got a bigger dosage or a more direct hit. But as uh, as Sandra and the boss are kind of driving down the road away from the boys, Sandra locked eyes with Dana and she held his gaze until they faded out of sight. She said that it is, to this day, the saddest memory that she has. The boss drives Sandra around for a while and she's starting to get a little bit anxious and nervous the longer that they're alone because she doesn't really know what's going to happen next. Well, and she's also not been in trouble with the police. So she has probably other than TV, absolutely no like reference for what should be happening. So who knows? I don't know. I don't know if the boss could sense that she was getting a little anxious, but, you know, he he wanted to keep trying to build credibility around this ruse that he was a cop and these other guys were cops. So he elaborates and he says he's an undercover narcotics agent from California and he brags about an assignment where he recently infiltrated the Hells Angels. So, again, I know this sounds very suspicious and very unlikely. Like, how could Sandra possibly believe this guy? She's young. I Mm -hmm. also think... 
maybe it was just a different time and there was kind of mm-hmm. like a less inherent distrust Definitely. in the police. So you, yep. she's kind of like, all police are good. Like I would never think somebody would impersonate a police officer. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he really was trying to build some credibility to this story here. And what does she know about it? Right. You know, like, and she probably has only had good experiences. She hasn't been in trouble with the police. So her experiences have probably been positive like that. I was just thinking that story's not even that bad. Right. I'd be right. like, oh, okay, well, that makes, yeah, that makes sense yeah. now that it sort yeah. of happened like this because you're undercover, so you're used to, like, a sting operation. Right. right. Yep. So he tells her that they're they're actually going to go to a rendezvous point and meet up with the sheriff and that the other two officers are going to be there and so will her friends. So after what seems like forever, the boss pulled up to what he said the rendezvous point was. It looked a lot like an old abandoned farmhouse, and that's because it was an old abandoned farmhouse. Oh, my God. Sandra could see that the other two men from earlier in the night were there. She didn't see the van, and she didn't see the boys, but she did see another truck and those men, so she was thinking her friends were there. The boss got out of the truck, and he stood outside talking to the men for several minutes. While she was alone, Sandra studied every inch of the truck she was in. She wanted to remember every detail. She focused on the color of the speedometer glow, the shape of the glove compartment, the inspection sticker in the window. What was the date? What was the color? Are there cracks or imperfections in the windshield? So I don't know if subconsciously something kicked in, but she was working on committing the details of this truck to memory. That's so smart. When the men were done talking, a different man, so not the boss, got into the truck with Sandra. Trigger warning for anyone that is sensitive to the topic of sexual assault. I was afraid you were going to say that. Yep. This man ordered Sandra to take her clothes off and proceeded to violently rape her. Oh, no. During the attack, he elbowed her in the face. He knocked her head against the door of the truck several times. She was not fortunate enough to pass out or lose consciousness, so she was conscious for the entire attack. Once he was done, the other the two men, this one included, got into a car and drove off, leaving Sandra and the boss alone at the abandoned farmhouse. The boss got back in the truck with her and he said something like, well, that wasn't so bad now, was it? I think Sandra would strongly disagree that that no was so kidding. bad. Yeah. But instead, she just tells him that she was a virgin. The boss kind of scoffs and is like, yeah, sure. OK, you were a virgin. But at this point, Sandra turns to him and she says, no, I'm not lying. I'm only 13 years old. The boss just glared at her and she could tell that he was genuinely shocked by how young she was. Because remember, she looks like she's 16 or 17. Mm. Not that that makes it any better. No, 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 no. He then tells her after a long period of silence that they need to get out of the truck and go check the farmhouse for critters. He grabbed a hatchet from the backseat of his car and motioned for her to get out. She gets out of the truck and makes it to the porch of the farmhouse before she runs back to the truck. Um, After what had just happened to her, she is absolutely terrified and she thinks that the boss is going to kill her. And she's not wrong. That was his intent. She's sobbing hysterically and she's saying that she doesn't want to go into the creepy house. She doesn't want to go. And rather than trying to convince her to go in again, the boss sat silently for five minutes just watching her. Fuck. Eventually, he asks her, where do you live? I'll take you home. So she tells him and they drive off. And as they get closer to her home, he pulled off to the side of the road. And he said, if she ever tries to tell anybody about what happened that night, not only will he kill her, but he will kill her entire family, which he now conveniently knows where they all live. Uh. Sandra said she understood and he must have believed her because he got back on the road and continued to her house. When they arrived at the house before she could get out of the truck, 
he asked her for her phone number and said that he would be in touch with her in a few days and they could get together. What? What the fuck's happening? Yeah. So Sandra, in her state of like panic and just what what is happening, actually gave her real phone number. She did well, not have, yeah. right? She didn't I mean, think about giving him yeah. a fake one. Eight six seven five three zero nine. So now this man has her phone number and he knows where she lives. Oh. But he lets her walk out of the house and in, or out of the car and into the front door of her house. It's between four and five a.m. when she gets there, and her mother's usually up for work within the next hour. But Sandra's kind of playing over the details of the night and this man threatening her life, and she decides she's not going to tell her mom anything that morning. Instead, she wakes up one of her brothers. I'm assuming it was Bill, but I don't actually know if it was him. She tells her brother about what happened in the park, and she also asks him if cops would rape her. Oh, my God. Her brother is like, no, that that does not sound like something a cop would do, and he tells her she has to report this. Oh, good Bill. Sandra goes to bed, and when she wakes up, she calls a friend of hers to tell her what happened. I think she just wants to get, like, Mm -hmm. a second opinion. Mm -hmm. While she's waiting for her friend, she tries calling the boys, but she doesn't have any luck getting in touch with any of them. Her friend arrives and Sandra tells her exactly what happened. And her friend basically echoes her brother's mm-hmm. thoughts. She's like, yeah, we got to go report this right now. So the two girls hitchhike to the Sioux Falls <laughs> police station. The 70s man. <laughs> I would be terrified no to kidding. hitchhike. Yeah. Like, absolutely terrified. Yep. When they arrive at the station, Sandra tells the front desk that she needs to talk to someone. Because last night when she and her friends were in the park, some men showed up saying they were cops. They shot at her friends before separating her from them, and she was just kind of wondering if her friends were at the station, because that's where the men said they were taking them. Mm-hmm. Unknown to Sandra, earlier that same day, a couple had been out test driving a car in the area of Gitche Manitou when they noticed something odd looking in the tall grass. They got closer to see what it was and were horrified to discover it was the body of bodies of three teenagers. Mm-hmm. The couple immediately reported what they found to the Sioux Falls Police Department, But by the time the detectives arrived on the scene, it was starting to get dark. They could still tell, though, that what they were walking into was just something out of a horror movie. They could see that all three of the boys were shot in the back, execution style, with what appeared to be a shotgun at close range. It also looked like they had been likely shot elsewhere and then had their bodies moved to this location. So as far as the police know, they have three dead teenagers and now a fourth teenager showing up claiming to have been on the scene last night. And a lot of what she's saying to them matches what the officers observed at the park. So they feel pretty confident that the two are connected. Which I'm kind of, well, not glad about any of this, but I'm glad because I could imagine them not believing a 13-year-old or something like that. So I'm glad that it was backed up. Well, keep imagining that for a second there. So the police do bring Sandra into an interview room where they are the ones that have to break the news to her that, yeah, they found her friends, but they were all deceased. So for the first time, Sandra's now actually processing the events of that night. Those men were not police. Those were not tranquilizer guns. Her friends were not brought to jail. They were dead. Her boyfriend was dead. Mm. It was all too much for her, and she collapsed on the floor of the interview room. And then she became a suspect? She sure did. Yeah. Oh. So despite her reaction, the police immediately treated her like she was a suspect rather than a victim. What? Okay. The detectives, they don't understand why only one of three men would have raped her. Why didn't all three of them? 
Why didn't they kill her? And why did they let her go home safely? They delivered her to her house. I mean, that is weird. It is. That they murdered everyone except her and hand delivered her to the house. That's weird. So if that's the story that you're getting. But do you know what's weirder is a 13 year old murderer of like that's less likely. Yeah. But I mean, like the cops have nothing else to go on. I guess. You know? Okay. I hate it. but still, I hate it, too. But you're right. To them, it sounds like she's somehow involved, or at the very least, she knows these men, and she's protecting them. There was at least one police officer who believed her, though. Sheriff Craig Vinson, he was a very old-school, like, go-with-your-gut kind of a guy, and his gut told him that Sandra was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Good. Sandra was extremely well-composed, and she was incredibly blunt in her recounting of the rape to the police. She remembered everything so well for someone who was so young and just having gone through a very traumatic experience. Some of the investigators questioned her credibility. How could she be so certain? How did she remember so many details? But again, Sheriff Vinson did not waver. He brought in somebody to draw a sketch of the farmhouse that Sandra had said that the boss brought her to. And again, she gave a remarkably detailed description of it. Once the drawing was finalized, they set out looking for the farmhouse. And since he believed her, he also believed that her life and her family's lives were in danger. So Sandra was kept in protective custody and her parents were relocated. Her parents and siblings were Mm -hmm. relocated outside of their house. Good. Good. In the days that followed, investigators had Sandra writing down every last detail from the night that she could remember and looking through endless mugshots. For almost two weeks, Sandra and the police were out looking for the farmhouse. Again, like I had to keep reminding myself that this girl is only 13 Mm -hmm. years old. She was putting in 12 to 14 hour days right alongside these officers to try to figure out what happened here. And what a traumatic, like she's not healing during this time. She is right in the moment. She can't move on. She's, oh, this poor, poor kid. You know what though? That maybe that was better for Mm. her because it gave her purpose and meaning. And she was trying to help solve this for her friends and boyfriend that she lost. Yep. That's a, that's a really good way to look yeah. at it. Cause I know for myself, like sometimes it's better if I, if I have a distraction. Yeah. Right. I mean, she probably would then have to grieve later yeah. as if like whatever time span that was never even happened, but yeah, you know, she had a purpose. Yes. Many of the officers started getting really frustrated with her because they don't really believe her. They're like, okay, it's been two weeks on this. This is just a waste of time. It's a wild goose chase. The accomplice of the murderers is putting on. Um, the homicide detectives were so frustrated with her that they would just yell at her and like tell her, you're lying, you're lying, enough is enough already, basically trying to get her to crack and come clean. But Sandra held strong in her story. She was a victim and she was going to find this farmhouse. She did not even care what anybody thought of her. All she wanted was justice for her friends. Of course. Finally, on November 29th, as Sheriff Vincent and Sandra were driving through the countryside in Hartford, South Dakota, I didn't know there was another Hartford out there. Sandra saw the farmhouse. She had recognized a red gas tank that she had seen the boss use that night, and she was confident that this was the place. She got out of the car, and just as she was getting out, a pickup truck was coming down the dirt road. It was the boss. Sandra recognized him and the truck immediately and started screaming, that's him, that's the boss, and she was clearly terrified. So the truck starts to drive away, and the officers chase it down, and they get him to pull over. And when they see who the driver is, they're like, it's a man named Alan Fryer. So they're chatting with him and they notice two things about Alan Fryer's truck. The pickup truck is exactly as Sandra described it. Mm. And there was a shotgun on the floor of the truck. (laughs) 
One of the officers said that as soon as he looked into his eyes, like he knew he was staring into the eyes of a killer. Oh my gosh. And guess what? Alan just happened to have two brothers, David and James, who Sandra would pick out of a lineup as his accomplices the very next day. Did the boss even kill anybody or was it just the two brothers? Right. Because the boss was responsible Mm. for Sandra and he let her go. The boss did kill somebody. He maintains that he didn't. Um, I will tell you who he killed when we get to the brother's perspective of the evening. So actually... That's probably a good time to do it. So let's talk a little bit about the brothers, right? Let, let's get to know them just the same way that we got to know Sandra mm. and the boys. I'd rather not. <laughs> Can we not and say we did? They're not going to have a very sympathetic story. So mm. it's okay. I, I think I want to tell you because I want you to build the hatred for them. Okay. Hit me with it. All right. So the Fryer brothers were just three of 13 children. Holy shit. Born to Mildred and Lyle Fryer. Oh, Mildred. That's I, that's too many kids. I loved the name Lyle Fryer. Like, it, it's almost Lyle. like a little slant rhyme. <laughs> so the family made a very modest living as farmers. Big theme out there. Lots of farmers. Lyle was definitely the head of the household. And he was very controlling and would often berate and belittle his wife in front of the children. Mildred didn't really stand up for herself, so the boys grew up thinking that they could do whatever they wanted or say whatever they wanted to get their way because that's what their dad modeled for them and showed was okay. The female siblings were quiet and shy, and they honestly, they, they just tried to stay out of everybody's way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These three brothers in particular, Alan, who was 29, David, who was 24, and James, who was 21, had a reputation for being trouble. They were all what I would consider to be career criminals, So, to give you a couple examples of what they had done in their career, when David was just 16, he was arrested because he and a buddy of his were out driving around with their windows rolled down and shooting at people with a shotgun. (gasps) Okay. Not Uh, what I thought you were going to say. On another occasion, David and a friend were fleeing from the police in a high-speed chase while firing rounds off at the police the entire time. Okay. James, not to be outdone by his brother had a reputation for being incredibly violent and stole his first car when he was only nine years old. Grand Theft Auto, you know. NBD. At the time of the murders, though, James was actually serving jail time for theft. Hmm. So you might be wondering, how did he participate in these crimes if he was in jail? Did he escape? (laughs) Not exactly. So he was in jail for a nonviolent crime and there was a work release program that he was eligible for. So he actually retained the job he had before he was incarcerated, which was as a tow truck driver. So that day he happened to be out on work release and he had his brother David call the prison and pretend to be his supervisor, basically saying like, we're short staffed and I need him to pull an extra shift. And the prison just said, okay. And I say again, the 70s man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the brothers, how did they like to spend their time other than, you know, just illegal activities and whatnot? They love to hunt, like to the point where they would go hunting every single night. It sounds like they like to hunt people. It does sound like that. And police officers. The deadliest game. (laughs) Yes. It was never about having food to feed their family with, though. They enjoyed hunting because they liked the thrill of the kill. No. Oh. I do not like. So then they moved on to human beings. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. More thrilling. Don't like. And that's exactly what they were in the park to do that night. They were going hunting. Not humans, though. The intent. They were there to poach deer. 
Um, I say poach because the brothers really could not be bothered to get the proper hunting oh, licenses ever, yeah. you know, because they're not the kind of guys that play by the rules. So they were in the park looking for deer that night. But there were no deer to be found in the woods on that evening. Instead, what they saw were five vulnerable teenagers gathered around a campfire. The boss, a.k.a. Alan. So this is not Bruce Springsteen, Laura. I didn't want you to be too confused. It's fine. Not nearly as cool (laughs) as that boss. No, no. So the boss, Alan, sent his brother David to scout out the situation from the top of one of those quartzite walls. So that was the initial rustling that the kids heard was David making his way on top of this wall. It provided the perfect vantage point to spy on the teenagers without them being any wiser of it. That's why it's so unfortunate to be out in the dark. Yes. Near a fire. Because anybody in the darkness can see you, but you cannot see them. them. It's like the flashlight in the cemeteries. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And this is, this is why I think this story is so scary for me because like you're supposed to be in like a a little safe haven right there around your fire and it's just, you're so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, what I hate about this is there's no connection. They had nothing. It just was wrong place, wrong time. That is so bad. Not that you can avoid many of the other cases that we have told, but that just makes it so it much worse. It wasn't personal at right. all. They exactly. didn't know the kids. Exactly. Yeah, the motive. Yes. Just, oh, we went deer hunting. There were no deer, so we just decided to hunt humans for sport. Ugh. Okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. I just, it's so fucked <laughs> up. So after David, you know, is kind of assessing the situation for a while, he returns to his brothers and he reports back that the kids have marijuana on them. Quick side note, um, all three of the brothers had nicknames. It wasn't just Alan, the boss, who had a cool nickname. James was known as Sneaky, which feels pretty on brand for him. And David went by Hatchet Face. (laughs) Guys, guys, I don't know why on this one, but I'm just going to go with like, he was a rough looking man. (laughs) Hatchet McHatch Face. (laughs) That's kind of what I got. I feel like maybe he took a hatchet to the face from one of his brothers and... Aww. They're like, haha, you're hatchet face now. <laughs> like they're just like hanging out in the backyard in, in Iowa or South Dakota and it's how they entertain themselves. Before like, axe yep. throwing was cool. <laughs> exactly. They were the pioneers. I still don't know how that is allowed. How like insurance companies will insure those businesses when you mm-hmm. have people drinking, yeah. throw, throwing axes. So, funny enough, a little aside, we were actually supposed to do that for a team building thing for work and our legal nixed it for that exact reason. Yeah. We were like, you can't do that. But we went rope climbing instead, which I, you know, <laughs> you there was like, no alcohol there. So, <laughs> but yeah. You're like, all right, I can't throw things. I'm going to dangle above the yeah. earth instead. Yeah. But, but you're not chucking sober. sharp yeah. objects. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a real story. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, returning back to the 70s here. Hatchet face. Yes, hatchet 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 face. face. So the the brothers devised this ruse of being narcotics officers. And for some bizarre and unknown reason, they're under the impression that cops are fully within their rights to just shoot drug users. They they think this is what cops do. Okay. Which is amazing because they probably have interacted (laughs) with cops plenty. They got some experience. As they approached the campsite, Alan shot and killed Roger while it was David who shot and badly wounded Stuart. Alan's the boss. Yes. Alan was also the one that shot Mike in the arm when he tried to challenge what the brothers were doing. (laughs) Because Sandra is going to leave with Alan, we don't actually know which of the brothers killed Stuart, Dana, and Mike. But during the interrogation, David, who we'll see is the most cooperative of the three of them, he does say that James killed all three. Um, David admitted to shooting Stuart in the back, but he said he thought he was already dead when he shot him. 
So mm. I, I feel like he was like maybe shooting him to like save face with his brother. Like, mm. oh, you shot them. I shot them too. Mm. I, I is David know. David's hatchet face? David is hatchet face. Yeah, yes. I, I feel like he probably did get a hatchet to the face because he seems like the little meek mm. little one, you know, and the other two are kind of the. And the James meek, is yeah. the sneaky prison yeah. escapee. Yeah. Yep. I believe that James could have killed all three of them because he was the one that had the reputation for being the most violent. Uh, but we don't know. Mm. One other thing that I didn't spend too much time looking into because I really didn't want to upset myself further on this is um, I read a lot about like Buck O shotgun shells. Like there's different kinds of mm. shotgun shells, like what's inside them. And I guess mm. some of them, I probably sound really stupid to people that know guns, but I don't. <laughs> so one of, one of these, there's a kind that has like little pellets almost mm-hmm. inside of it that would be designed for like hunting pheasants or birds. Yes. Um, and then these apparently are designed to kill deer and they're like bigger ball bearings that are mm-hmm. in there. So I think the point of kind of saying this is like the injuries these kids sustained were devastating. Oh. Like, it was not there was no hope that they could have possibly Awful. survived this well like close range shotgun like that yeah. with like buckshot leaves like gaping holes oh. like gaping wounds i can't Awful. i can't imagine the people who went for their test drive and stumbled across this scene right no oh. they probably are not okay they're probably no. not no they probably did not buy that car that would be a big <laughs> big sign that this was not a good test drive <laughs> <laughs> Real smooth, but drives past drives past their bodies. Yeah, <laughs> B minus. <laughs> Do not recommend. Yes. <laughs> I mean, do you want to drive? Four out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> so when the brothers met back up at the farmhouse, it was James that raped Sandra. The plan. The guy fucking sucks. He sucks. He straight up sucks. The plan was supposed to be that David was going to drive James back to jail, sneak him back in. Alan was supposed to take care of Sandra, which is why he made up the story about needing to go hunt the critter inside of the farmhouse. So oh, I love the sneaking back into jail. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those old timey criminals that are like, again, they're like black and white striped. He's caught like climbing the fence back into prison, which I think that actually happened in Connecticut. It was a guy that was out on one of these like lower level offenses. And he like just hopped the fence during the day and they caught him coming back into the prison. He's like, what? Uh, He's like, I'm back now. I just wanted three square meals a day. I thought this was America. I'm back now. (laughs) You mean, if this is the crime, can I just be put in jail for it? I'm going there now conveniently. (laughs) So why didn't he kill her? Yeah. Alan says it's because when she told him she was 13, he thought about his stepdaughter, who was also 13 Mm. years old, and he just couldn't bring himself to follow through with it. Just in line with our listen, learn, and stay alive, I have seen this in movies and on TV shows where if you are thinking that you're about to be killed or you're with an attacker, you tell them as quickly as you can as many personal details Mm. about yourself as you can because just like that, it might strike a chord and then they will uh, think twice about killing you. This is true even for not murder, but just bad things because with David Parker Ray, when he let Angelica go, he said, if I had known you better, like if I had known you were such a great person, I wouldn't have done this to you or something like that. So yeah. I, I think it is very true. Yeah. I've seen like a movie where she was like, um, I'm only 14 and I have a mom and I have a dog and I have a little brother and I go to school and I volunteer and my oh. teachers yep. and just like spew off as much as you wow. can. 
experts actually applauded Sandra because Mm -hmm. they said she helped herself out big time here because she spent so much time alone with him that night. And for the most part, she actually stayed very calm, which they said was also important. So she made herself seem like a person rather than a faceless victim. Yep. And she also somehow maintained her composure when she was asked how she stayed so calm. She actually credits the boys with why she was able to. She said that she personally believes that they understood the gravity of the situation way more than she did. And she thinks they put on a brave face for her benefit. Like she said that they didn't really look scared. None of them begged for their lives or anything like that. And she said if they would have shown any signs of anything being wrong, she, she would have freaked out. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And he probably would have killed her if she was yep. being yes. obnoxious and screaming. Yep. Yep. He would have been like, I can't deal can't with deal. this. Yeah. So she she really thinks of the boys as her heroes. Oh, oh man. See, you just never know like what it like if you yeah. got kidnapped, you don't know what killer you're getting because there's some situations right. where the victims freak out and scream and that like freaks out the killer and yes. they let him go or somebody hears them versus like had she done that she probably yep. would have died but because she stayed calm he let her live so like it's yeah. honestly it when it's your time it's your time in that yeah. situation because yeah. there's no yeah. rhyme or reason to these situations you just do what you can and yeah i i have a question in the beginning you said we like she might get blamed or is that what we talked about where the police thought she was the um responsible for it and and, and an accomplice Yes, and we'll talk a little bit about how the public treated her through all of this. That's what I was wondering, if there was more to that. Yeah, unfortunately, there is more to that. So let's talk a little bit about interrogating the brothers, because now we kind of have their side of the story high level from their perspective. But what did they say in one-on-one conversation with the police? And this is Rich, so get excited, guys. Um, What happened last time? We were in a case where there were three suspects. They all pointed the finger at each other and they yep. said, oh, I was there, but I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the exact situation Ugh. that we have here. Classic. It's yep. classic. Yep. Classic criminal. <laughs> Alan initially denies the, the entire thing. He's like, no, I wasn't there that night. They're like, bro, your nickname is the fucking boss. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> the police, obviously, they don't buy this for a multitude of reasons. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he's like, okay, okay, I was there, but... The teenagers were the ones that were armed with the shotguns, and they were firing at us. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. And that's why they were shot in the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, he, he said they fought back, and in self-defense, they killed the boys in the struggle. Uh-huh. So they pulled the guns away, and they just all happened to go off while they were facing the other direction. Pretty good argument. I mean, they left a witness alive now. Yes. And now that they have the perpetrators, like, it's just not going to match up for you. It's not. And you know what? The, the police still are not buying this version of the story. So uh-huh. one thing that doesn't help Alan um, is that David has already told the police exactly what's happened <laughs> that night. So they know. Um, but Alan doesn't know that they know. So finally, Alan admits that he was there, but he maintains he did nothing wrong. He did not kill anybody. Which, liar. Okay. But anyway, James, when James is interviewed, he immediately pointed the blame to both of his brothers. He says, oh, yeah, I, I saw the teenagers. I saw the weed. And Alan wanted to play detective. He got this brilliant idea to be in narcotics officers and go take it from them. He's like, and I raped the girl in self-defense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, he says that Sandra was a willing participant. Oh, she oh, was laughing and having you. a good time. Fuck you, sneaky well, guess what? James. That, that is still illegal. She was 13. Exactly. So, fuck you. Yes. Mm. James James sucks. James is a terrible human being. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't see a lot of detail um, for like the questioning with David. I'm assuming it's because he mostly told them yeah. like what was going on. Yep. He's like, they don't call me hatchet face for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I have the grimmest of grim facts that I oh, have to share with you oh guys. No. If you think your heart is broken now. No. no. So since this park is known as a party location for teenagers, cops regularly perform sweeps of the campsites there looking for teens to just clear them out of the park. They don't like do anything to get the kids in trouble. They're they just like, go home. Right. They don't shoot them. No, they don't okay. shoot them. They, that wasn't in practice. Okay. No, just check it on the night of the murders, there was a really heavy fog in the park. So there were two police officers that were there. But while they were on patrol, they almost had a head on collision between the two of them because the fog was so dense. So one of the officers called off going through like the nightly routine of the park. Do you want to know who that officer was? It was Sheriff Vincent. I think part of the reason he always believed Sandra is I feel like this poor man feels partially responsible oh. because he didn't clear the kids out of the park that night. Oh, okay. But that just lends to my theory that like when it is your time, yep. Yep. like when your number is called, like yep. that's just yep. the stars oh. aligned. That's yes. what I was thinking. The oh stars aligned. God. Oh, that's terrible. And the fact that there was fog and all of this just makes it so much worse. So creepy. Picturing all of this. Yeah. Mm. On December 1st, 1973, all three brothers were arraigned and charged with four counts of murder. Bond was set at $400,000 each brother, right? So $100,000 for each kid who was slain. Um, so needless to say, they didn't make bail. Mm-hmm. So they sit in jail until their trials. I mean, did James just go back from <laughs> whence he came? Though they probably changed his rating and bumped him up to a higher security prison. Ha 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 ha. Keep that thought together for a second. Oh, no. <laughs> so let's talk about David because he's the most cooperative. David decides pretty quickly that he's going to plead guilty and he's going to cooperate with the authorities. And he does do that on February 12th, 1974. Um, he he pleads guilty to these charges. There's no death penalty in Iowa. So, you know, he he thinks it's great. I'm going to cooperate with these guys like I'm not going to I'm not going to get the death penalty. You know, maybe I'll get some favor. He doesn't get any favor. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for his Good. involvement. Good. Alan and James wanted to take their chances with a jury trial. And during the year that the trials were occurring, these two broke out of the county jail. (laughs) So when you're like, did he go back from whence he came? (laughs) No, but he left the prison again. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So here's what happened. There were new locks being installed in the prison that, again, poor Sheriff Vincent ordered. You know, he was the overseer of the county jail. He was like, oh, we're going to install new locks. He hired contractors to do it. And Alan happened to be watching as they were installing and somehow he realized that they didn't weld the bolts properly. So this guy took a coil from his mattress and formed a makeshift wrench and was able to loosen the bolts and escape the jail cell. And he just walked right up to his brother's cell and unlocked it. And the two of them walked out of the building, got into a truck that was parked outside and they headed towards Washington State. Uh, the seventies man. Mm-hmm. Um, use your skills for good, not evil. Mm-hmm. Yes. To like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what? Why was he in a county jail? He was already serving a prison sentence. James was, yeah, but not Alan. Ja- yeah, but why was James why not was he there? back from the prison that he came from? I'm not sure. 
I did. They did say something about extraditing him from one prison to another, but I didn't fully understand. And I I'm trying this new thing where I try to make my brain not need to learn all of the like <laughs> details of every single thing that happens. Col- Colby and I accidentally go to law school during grammar. Yeah, it, it's not it, it's not going super well for me. <laughs> I still get a lot of details, but I'm, I'm trying. But somehow, like it was intentional. They like coordinated it so he was in that jail i'm really mad about the prison escape but i guess yeah this is like 50 years ago yes which will is be 50 nuts. years yep. yeah they don't succeed for long in their escape good <laughs> they're they're idiots they struck a pedestrian while they were on <laughs> the run with this stolen vehicle and there were people who witnessed it and the cops caught up to them there was a high-speed chase that ensued and they were like all right back to the iowa jail for you guys um, just a quick side note: the woman that got hit, totally fine. Oh, okay. good, good. So not another murder. Not another murder. Nope. Okay. Well, then you totally know fine. what? She's a hero. She kind of she is, is a, a hero. hero for taking the hit from a vehicle. Yep. And <laughs> coming out the other side, and those assholes are back in prison. Yep. yep. I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> yeah. You, you go, Glenn Coco. I She's don't know her yeah. name. She's a goddamn hero. She is. Sandra was, of course, the star witness in both of the trials. She would take the stand for hours at a time, and she was so nervous to be in this courtroom with these guys, understandably so, that she asked the judge if her mom could come sit with her in the witness box and hold her hand to help calm her nerves. Stop. Stop it. You stop it right now. (laughs) She she was such a trooper through all of this, and she has turned 14 throughout all of it, so, you know, a whole extra year wiser, but she's still a kid. Yes. Yeah testifying against hatchet mitch mchatchet face <laughs> and sneaky mcsneaks a lot out of jail it's really hard to say hatchet face. it's really hard to yeah. say yeah this is this is how we cope with devastating things <laughs> it's it's i have to make a joke it's uh, mm. i'm so devastated for her i'm gonna need another joke after this quick oh, next little oh, section no. um the defense attorneys were garbage human beings they like look I get that it is their job to defend their clients. I understand. Mm -hmm. But they focused on not defending their clients so much as assassinating Sandra's character. Well, that's really all that you have to go on, especially when your clients are super guilty. Like, all you can do is cast doubt on her credibility. And it sucks. But, like, that's your job. That's also what happened in Toy Box Killer when David Parker Ray was on the stand and uh, and Kelly was the witness. They did exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Just attacked her character and attacked her memory and all that. And it's like, yep. So uh, speaking of attacking her memory, they harped on how it was too dark for her to be sure of the things she's saying she knows for fact. And like, wasn't she confused, admittedly? And like, she was scared. She could have misremembered or misinterpreted things. Um, And they this is the part that really frustrates me. The defense attorney said, you gave your consent for sex that night, to which Sandra responded, what's consent? Oh, my God. She was fucking 13 years old. You gross ass defense attorney. Like she could not possibly consent to anything. Exactly. And she just proved it by saying what is consent. Right. Not that she needs to prove it. But also, I can't imagine a scenario where they devastate her credibility enough for them to overlook the fact that she described the farmhouse and his vehicle in enough detail to find it find these men and for the men to not say i wasn't involved but i didn't do it and point fingers at someone else so it's like does it really fucking matter at that point like the three of you are together responsible for all of this like she pointed you out like you're not gonna believe her at this point like come on still no but the jury believed her (sighs) 
Good. So just like David, Alan and James were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And Good. every single appeal has fallen through for the Friar brothers. Good. Alan is serving his life sentence in Anamosa, Iowa, while David and James are currently serving their life sentences at Fort Dodge Correctional Facility in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Hmm. I have a fun little grim petty fact because <laughs> I love my pettiness here. So for almost 40 years, the three brothers were actually all together at the same prison. Hmm. Um, but right around the time where Sandra decided that she wanted to participate in this The Gitchy Girl book, she decided that she wanted closure and she wanted to go talk to the men in prison and ask why her friends had to die that night because oh. she felt they owed her that and agree. Okay, this is actually like a criminal justice concept. It's called restorative justice where oh. the victims and the perpetrators sort of speak to each other and it helps give the victims closure huh. and when the offenders take responsibility for their actions like everybody heals from it wow. and it helps rehabilitate the offenders and it helps the victims cope with their yeah. circumstances so i mean wow. good for her yeah there's not a lot of victims like who could yeah. really come to terms with that Seriously. but like good for her wow so Alan was the only one of the three who agreed to meet with her. David and James huh. wanted nothing to do with speaking to this woman. And here's my the pettiness. When David and James found out that Alan was like, okay, yeah, I'll talk to her. They requested a transfer and they were moved to another facility. <laughs> so they were like, boy, bye. Like you kept this girl alive. And that yeah, is the true. reason why she's in here. And now you're going to talk to her. True. So they just ditched him basically <laughs> wow i guess she lucked out having the boss in the yeah. truck that night because I, I think, think did. If it was i think if it was james or david she'd be dead yep. i think so too yep wow so what was the motive for all of this like they're pieces of shit yeah yeah, yeah. Well, they were bored you guys Ugh. you guys jokingly but not jokingly said you know they graduated from hunting smaller prey to hunting humans and like that was one of the theories Ugh. for why they did this but I actually kind of believe a second theory that the crimes were sexually motivated. And I'll tell you why. So from the perch on the quartzite, the men had a, obviously a much better view of the mm -hmm. teens than the teens had of them. And with the way the light hit Dana, Dana had long hair and he was still young. So he kind of had like, you know, some like soft. volume and yeah, yeah he, had a, he had a lot of soft features. So I believe that the men mistook Dana for female, which would explain why Dana and Sandra were not initially shot at the campsite. <sighs> and I, I have no idea what kind of an ID a 14 year old has, but when Dana was trying to prove to them that he was male, like they made him show his identification to them. And that's huh. when they moved him with the boys the rest of the time. Oh, wow. So I think, oh. I think they looked at this campfire. They saw three boys and two girls and, and a yep. joint. And they were like, well, let's get their drugs. Let's get their girls yep. and like dispose of them. Yep. Mm. And I, I would be willing to bet this was not their first offense of that nature not i mean maybe killing people but probably not with assaulting women yeah i don't i hadn't i didn't see anything like i'm sure it's not yeah. i'm sure it's not on the record i'm just sure that they've behaved poorly yeah one of those situations where they go to a party and yep. somebody's too that's drunk and they say no i don't really want to and that's they're like exactly. well yep yeah. yep 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 nine no's and one yes is still a yes that's Ugh. their mo Ugh. Mm -hmm. yes Ugh, indeed so before we wrap up i do want to spend a couple times talking about like the public reaction over the years and kind of how it's yeah. changed and mm -hmm. what sandra's up to now so sandra's obviously an incredibly strong person but yeah. people were incredibly unkind to her like there were a lot of rumors right from the get-go 
So when this first happened, a lot of people questioned why was a 13 year old girl dating a 17 year old boy and why was she hanging around with these other older male teenagers who were not the threat, by the way, right? They were fine. People said she must be dating the killer. She was a little tramp. She offered sex in exchange for her life. None of which are true at all. Of course not. She remembers that parents wouldn't let their children hang out with her. People she thought were her friends just abandoned her. If I'm remembering this correctly, she was treated so poorly that she actually dropped out of school. Oh, my gosh. Don't blame her. People said, like, some really, really disgusting things. Like, she got what she deserved. And, like, I can assure you without knowing her, like, nobody deserves this. No. No. Yeah. I have one theory. It doesn't justify the behavior. But I feel like sometimes people want to find or make up a reason that it happened because Mm -hmm. it hits too close to home and they don't want it to be random. They don't want it to be something that could have happened to them. You know, even going back to Cheshire, there were all these rumors going around about like how, you know, it could have been brought, they could have brought it on themselves Mm -hmm. because nobody wanted it to be a random thing. Yep. that could happen to them so like if they're saying this girl's a tramp it's who she's hanging out with it's yep. you know she's they're partially risking yes yep. they're trying that's to a make really good it, point they're trying to make it yep. where it's not something random that could have happened to yep. them like yep. she brought it on herself it is much scarier when it's random yes yeah, that's what i'm saying because you can't do anything no, right. to avoid it you know you can't yeah yeah you're just i think that's a good point if it's your time it's your time yeah Sandra says that she walked with her head down for 40 years. She Mm. never, ever wanted to draw any attention to herself. So she, for 40 years, declined every interview request and she laid low. Um, More recently, so about 10 years ago now, when she wanted to tell her side of the story, she contacted an author, Phil Hammond, and Mm -hmm. she worked with him to do just that, tell her story. And I think the reason that she contacted him specifically was because he actually knew her back then when this happened. He oh, was no my way. he was Mike Hadrith's best friend. Oh. So he had a personal connection to the case. Wow. She said that the reason she wanted to tell her story now was because she wanted her grandchildren to know what happened to their grandmother oh. and that she wasn't a bad person and her friends weren't bad people either. They were truly in the wrong place at the wrong time. So does that mean she married, had kids, that her kids had kids? She she did get married, um, but she and her husband were not able to conceive children of their own. Oh. However, he had two sons from a prior relationship, oh, okay. so she yep. does have two stepsons oh, good. today. Good, good. And he is a very wonderful and loving man. Oh, good. She said also very, very patient with her because, not surprisingly, she had a lot of issues she had to work through. Absolutely. Yeah. Forever. Wow. Yes. Wow. The public had coined the term the Gitchy Girl, referring to Sandra, right, because it was in Gitchy Manitou State Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was definitely used as a derogatory term towards her for the majority of her life. But I think through doing the book, she kind of reclaimed the title Good. for herself. Good. Okay. So um, just to very quickly kind of wrap up what she's doing today, right? We talked about she's married. She has two stepsons who she loves dearly. Um, She also has maintained her love for animals still throughout this whole thing. And she started rescuing animals and rehabilitating them. And she thinks that through that exercise, it's really helped her to heal in addition with being able to finally tell her story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I to end on a positive note here, when the book was released, she went on a book tour with the authors 
And that's when the reception of her story changed for the first time. And she felt like people finally heard her. She said that rather than turning away, people hugged her and they told her she was brave. And so many people have told her how her sharing her story has helped them cope with their own tragedies. And like, I I think that's a beautiful thing. It's the best thing that could have come out of this. Yes. Well, I... I don't know if she'll ever listen to our podcast, but if you happen to be listening, you are amazing. Yeah. yeah. I am blown away by the strength and bravery, and I'm so glad you were able to tell your story and for us to hear it. Mm-hmm. And the authors actually helped her coordinate a little memorial to the boys in the park. So it's not oh, exactly oh. at the campsite, but there are these beautiful stones that are there. And she goes and she talks to them. And it's just, I know, I have goosebumps Same. telling this had, whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So she still goes to visit them to kind of just use them as a sounding board. She asks them for advice. She tells them about her how her day was. They, they really are her heroes. Oh. All right. So that's it for today's episode. Wow. That was, um, you did a wonderful job. That was so sad. It was. was. It was really sad. And it was super interesting, Marina. Um, but it was, it was intense hearing it, knowing literally nothing yeah. about this case. I... I almost wish there was a video of this podcast because Marina's and my faces were just mouth open, like couldn't believe the entire time. It's just an an incredible story. And I think you did it justice. Also, this would make a great movie. It really would. Yeah. It would make a great movie. So if you are loving Grimm, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For those of you who listen on Apple podcasts, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a written review. Do it. Yes, do it for us, please. please. You will make our day, our week, maybe even our month if you do it. For sure. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for case photos and to stay current on the latest episodes. And if you want to send us any case suggestions or just say, hey, send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We hope you listen, learn, and stay alive. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.